Uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, Bill, I'm going to ask you to be my official timekeeper because I left my phone upstairs. When we get to uh, 20 after, you yell at me, all right? <laughs> Praise you, brother. Let's read the scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not love, have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and, I, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so Paul has been uh, teaching the Corinthian church about uh, public worship and right conduct in public worship. He's addressed the issue of spiritual gifts, uh, outlining some of the principles and the nature of spiritual gifts in the church and now he has, he's transitioned that end of that last chapter, there's a better way. And so he's going to be contrasting uh, the spiritual gifts uh, to uh, love. And he's going to do so uh, by personifying love and describing uh, what it is like. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, so he's referring here to the, the gift of tongues, which he's mentioned previously. And these are foreign languages that were spoken not by natural talent or by learned acquisition, uh, but supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. We see examples of it at Pentecost and Acts. And then for the, the, the rest of the, the New Testament age, we continue to see uh, in the uh, scriptures this coming up, especially in the context of Corinth. They uh, thought very highly of this gift of miraculous uh, tongues. He also mentions uh, these tongues of angels. And I don't think Paul's point here is that there is an actual gift of tongues of angels. We don't read that anywhere. But he's actually making sort of a hyperbolic statement throughout the whole of this section. He's going to talk about all, uh, uh, all things and all faith. And uh, he's making a, a strong statement uh, by way of hyperbole, I think, here. Even if you had uh, the gift of angels... If you do not have love, you're just a noisy gong 
or a clanging cymbal. As it points, whether it's human tongues or even hypothetically angelic tongues, as highly as you think of these gifts, uh, they are nothing without love. They, they have no purpose. They have no meaning. Uh, they can communicate only chaos and confusion and noise. They are worthless and devoid of any meaning apart from love. He goes on to say, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so it's the same structure. Even if I have this, if I don't have this, it's worthless. And he starts with tongues because the Corinthians were particularly uh, interested in the gift of tongues, and they had a, a high regard for that particular gift. And now he's filling out the rest of these gifts, the, the gifts of prophetic powers, of understanding, of knowledge, uh, of faith, that is, uh, faith for miracles uh, that, such w- that would move mountains. But he has not love. He, he's nothing. And so all these gifts, they're worthless without love. Uh, nobody has, I think, the gifts in full measure the way Paul's describing here, the, 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 the angelic tongues, the, the all-faith, the, uh, the all-knowledge, the, the all-understanding uh, of all mysteries, that sort of omniscient, uh, all-powerful all uh, type of faith. Uh, nobody really has, but he's saying even if we had it to that degree, even if we had these gifts in such a high degree of perfection, uh, without love they would be worthless. If God gave you the gift to be omniscient or all-powerful, which he hasn't, (laughs) it still would not matter. You would get no value, no gain, no benefit, and neither would the church without love. So his whole point here is to strongly contrast and to make clear it's absolutely necessary to, to the Christian life that we have love. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So even, even amazing acts of self-giving and self-sacrifice, uh, they earn you no reward without love. You could give billions and billions of dollars to charity, and you could even give up your body in the most gruesome form of martyrdom, and it would not matter without love. He's just laying on layer after layer after layer how absolutely necessary love is. And so sort of a summary statement, uh, even attaining to the highest gifts or debasing yourself to the lowest depths does absolutely nothing for the Christian if he has not love. Exaltation and humiliation are worthless without love. And so a Christian devoid of love produces nothing of value, is nothing of value, and gains nothing of value. Love is absolutely essential to the Christian's contributing, being, and future reward. Well, if this being the case, then we have to ask the question, what is love? Clearly, it's really important. Uh, everything is worthless without it. We are worthless without it. We, we have nothing, we are nothing, and we will gain nothing uh, if we do not have love. But then w- what is love? That's sort of the obvious question. And so what Paul's going to do is going to describe for us now love uh, by personifying love and giving us some description of that person. What does the loving Christian look like? First, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. 
And so the loving person is patient. He, he doesn't rush ahead of himself like the Corinthians were doing in their love feasts, going before all the others and gobbling up all the food, getting drunk and fat and full without leaving anything to share. And we were all leaving the Weish Pavilion this morning. We knew there was a breakfast ahead. I hope there was enough food. I was among the first in line because I had to prepare this lesson. <laughs> but I went, up, I went into the line and you know, we, we got our food. And I didn't go and just take a whole tray up to myself, you know. Uh, we, we make a point to not go ahead of one another and to share with one another. Uh, that is the sort of practical kind of love uh, that the Christian shows. In the case of Corinth, they weren't doing that. You think if you go to a, a, a we had a, a reception after one of our events recently, and you go and you're looking at the amount of food and the amount of people, and you sort of gauge, all right, what's a reasonable portion so that there's something for everyone to enjoy. It's a very practical, very simple, but very real uh, description of what love looks like. You're sitting at the family table, uh, and you don't take the biggest pork chop for yourself. Uh, you know, uh, you, you cut it in half and you share it with somebody. Uh, you don't take five helpings. If there's only enough for everybody to have one helping, that is Christian love. Love is kind it seeks the good of others before himself. It does not envy other people's gifts or successes. That's what's going on in Corinth, right? People see the spiritual gifts that other people have, and they're envious because, oh, why am I afoot and he's a, and he's a head? Why, do, why is he preaching and teaching and I'm taking out the trash? Uh, why couldn't God call me to a, a more impressive office and give me more impressive gifts? Uh, that is not the attitude of love, according to Paul. Uh, rather, uh, the sort of kindness uh, that does not envy and does not boast and is not arrogant is absolutely content in the place where God has called him or her to be. The Corinthian church had a lot of arrogant, proud people who thought very highly of themselves. And Paul's point is that this is not the way of love. Well, second, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It, does not, it, it, it is not irritable or resentful. And so the, the loving person does not habitually fail to respect or honor others. And again, this is getting at the specific sins Paul has been treating in the Corinthian church. We've had that section uh, where Paul has emphasized maintaining gender distinctions in dress and in worship uh, husbands submitting to Christ, wives submitting to husbands, and all of this has to do with the relationships God has created us to be in and our preserving of the honor of our head. And he's saying, love's not rude. It doesn't run contrary to nature or contrary to relationships, but it seeks to preserve the relationships that the Lord has placed us in and to honor those who are above us and to be fulfilling our duties to those uh, who are beneath us in station. And so there is this order to society, and we are to uh, preserve that order. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's considerate of the needs and the desires uh, of others. It is not irritable or resentful. You know, this is the, the tendency, right? When we, we know that we've been put in a, a place or a position where we are uh, beneath some people and, and above other people, husbands, fathers, uh, mothers, daughters, sons, uh, workers and employees and bosses, uh, presidents and, and citizens, kings and subjects. I mean, the, all of society through all of history has an order to it. 
and we are to uh, not uh, to be uh, resentful of the ordering which God has put us in. Uh, whether we've been put in a high place or a low place, with high gifts or low gifts, we're to be content, and we're not to complain, right? It's easy to say, okay, I'm going to do my duty, but I'm going to complain the whole way, right? I, this is my job, and I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it or like it, and I'm going to gripe and moan every day that I go to work or every day that I labor in the home, uh, whatever your situation may be. And Paul's saying that is not the way of love. Third, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A truly loving person does not rejoice at sin. Uh, he, he mourns over his own sin. He mourns over the sins of others. And because he knows the danger and the deadliness of sin, he is a loving person that honestly tells people and warns people about the way that they're walking when it is not good. He's willing to honestly tell sinners the truth, that they need to repent, that they need to believe, that they need to walk according to the word of the Lord. The loving person is honest about sin, but he doesn't rub sin in people's faces. He wants to see sinners restored, but he wants to do so in a way that does the least harm to the individual. And so he labors to to warn and to correct and to counsel uh, and to encourage. Uh, it's not just you know beating the dog in the face with the with a newspaper and saying you you done messed up again. He, he desires to see. He rejoices to see sinners walking in the truth, and so that is his aim, for them to repent and to walk in a better way. Well, fourthly, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I think really what's going on here, Paul is saying that the loving person doesn't let anything get in the way, right? He doesn't get anything in the way of the gospel. He doesn't believe the worst. He doesn't have uncharitable thoughts about people. He wants to believe the best. He's fundamentally optimistic about the 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 work of the gospel in the individual sinner's life, and he is laboring uh, to to see uh, that accomplished. So in short, a loving person is resilient. He's able to suffer a lot, and we see that throughout Paul's life, right? How, How much he is able to suffer, and he's willing to do that. But at the same time, he doesn't, in his suffering, again, become bitter and complaining and self bemoaning. Uh, he, he is willing and able to suffer and to endure, but he maintains that fundamental optimism that the, the, the course of the gospel is going forward, that the kingdom of God is advancing, that sinners are being saved and brought into uh, a better path. And it's really because of that fundamental hope that he's able to suffer the humiliation, right? When we have great and big expectations for the future, that reorients our present suffering. And that's what the way of love is. It's having great hope so that as we wait for the fulfilling of that hope, we can suffer greatly. That's the Christian way of love. And so the loving person is patient, kind, content, humble, honorable, sorrows for sin, rejoices for righteousness, and is resilient to the very end. And that brings us to the last section, which is that love lasts. And I'll wrap up uh, here with this. Paul's whole point on the whole in this last section is that prophecy 
and tongues and really all the spiritual gifts, they're temporary. They're for the gospel age, but a time is coming when they will no longer be necessary. They will all become obsolete when Christ comes again. When Jesus returns, we're not going to need knowledge or prophecy or tongues because the fullness of God will be revealed to us and we will understand and apprehend God as best as any finite creature ever could. And that is our great hope, our great expectation that Christ is coming again and when he comes, the perfect will come and these partial things, these things that are good in and of themselves, they will pass away because we will have the better, the perfect, the complete, the fullness of knowledge of God. He uses an illustration. He says that he's like a a child, thinking childish thoughts and reasoning like a child, and then he becomes a man and he puts away childish things. Paul's not saying, you know, those are childish thoughts were sinful. He's just saying they were age appropriate, right? When he was a child, he thought and reasoned like a child. He he thought and reasoned in an age appropriate way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when he became a man, he put away those childish things. What is wrong is when a man continues to think or reason or act or behave like a child. That's not natural. That's not good. Uh, You know, we have this sort of caricature now of sort of the basement dwelling beard, you know, you know, bearded, you know, man child who doesn't work and doesn't contribute and all he does is drink Mountain Dew and play video games in his parents' house. And this is something of what Paul's describing here, if I had to put it in modern terms. That's not normal and that's not good and it's not the way of love, right? Uh, Paul's point really is we should not desire to trade the perfect for the partial, right? Uh, as good as gifts are, they do not last. There is a time when they will no longer be necessary. And so we need to regard them appropriately. They are age-appropriate gifts, and we're thankful for them, and we need to, uh, to, to be thankful for them. But when the perfect comes, when we've grown into maturity, when the church is no longer a, a child, when it has become a man at the return of Christ, these things will no longer be necessary. And how, how foolish would be to want to trade that more perfect and greater and mature reality of fully knowing God for tongues and miraculous faith and even uh, a knowledge, these sorts of things, as good as they are, they have their time and their place. I see my timekeeper saying I'm out of time. Last illustration he uses is to the same effect, right? He likens our present age to us looking at God dimly through a mirror. Not one of the nice mirrors you have in your bathroom that's very clear, but old Roman mirrors of bronze that's been polished, and you can kind of make a reflection out of it. It's not great, but you can see something of reflection. Paul's saying, that's how we see God now. That's how we know God now. But a time is coming when we will see God, we will know God face to face. That is directly and personally and fully. I think about those words often. There's an intimacy to them, aren't there? To, to, to see God face to face. That's what's coming for us. And that's what we should hope for and pray for and expect. Let's make use of spiritual gifts in age-appropriate ways while looking to the future when we'll know God fully face to face. Now faith, hope, and love abides. 
these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why does Paul say love is the greatest of these things that will last? The spiritual gifts won't last. Faith, hope, and love uh, will last, but even among those three, love is the best. Well, because love is the foundation for our knowledge with God and for with one another. It's for God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever so would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. At the foundation of our knowing God and knowing the Son is the fact that God loved us. And that is why love is preeminent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for his resurrection from the dead. We thank you for your love, which was demonstrated in Christ's death and especially in his resurrection. Would you make us a people characterized by these things, that we would love one another, but most of all, that we would love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.